everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kimura. And today on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hello. And John Epperson. Hello, everybody. And we have a special guest today, Hilary Stowes Krause. Hello. So, Hilary, would you mind explaining about a bit about who you are, what you're doing, who you work for, and all that good stuff? Yeah, totally. I work in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm co-owner and full-stack software developer at a Rails mobile and web custom software consulting company. So we use Ruby and Rails as our primary stack. Obviously, for mobile, we're using Kotlin Swift. And we work with all kinds of different clients, but I think our some of our favorite clients to work with are either startups who need that first initial iteration for their tech component, and then organizations and companies that have some kind of social good aspect to the work that they're doing. Great. Awesome. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. And today we had you on to give us a kind of, would you mind giving us a recap about your talk, why we worry about all the wrong things? Yeah, so this was a talk that I first became interested in this idea of why does it seem like we're afraid of things that are relatively safe? And so it first started when I was on a plane and I'm one of those people who just has never experienced any kind of anxiety with flights. It's just not something that has ever bothered me. You know, I fly a lot for conferences and things and it just, it's pretty routine. And one day it was a flight in the evening. So it's dark outside, there's a storm and we hit this really rough patch of turbulence, probably the roughest that I've experienced where you actually felt like you were lifted out of your seat a little bit. And people around me are understandably freaking out and someone's praying, somebody's crying, you know, and I'm sitting there with this giant grin on my face because it feels like being on a roller coaster. And I know statistically that nothing is going to happen. We're going to be fine. It's just a storm. It's perfectly safe. And just sort of recognizing that disconnect between my experience and what it felt like most of the people on the planes experience of this exact same situation kind of made me start to wonder, why are people so afraid of this? You know, what is sort of causing this reaction, despite you know, statistical knowledge that flying is incredib- an incredibly safe form of transportation. And so, yeah, so the, the talk really explores that, that sort of, you know, first of all, why is fear valuable? What are the reasons that we're afraid of things? How is fear created? You know, what's the process in our, in our bodies and in our brains for having an experience of fear? And then what are the downsides to how this out sort of outmoded process of fear and decision-making affects our everyday lives? And what are things we can do to sort of acknowledge this and kind of change our behavior or the way that we think to minimize the impact that it has on our lives and how we analyze risk, how we make decisions, all that kind of thing. So it's, it's really fascinating, especially for someone who, you know, doesn't have a neuroscience background. I learned a lot while doing research for this, this talk, and I've had really great conversations with people about you know, their own experiences with anxiety and fear and how they've sort of dealt with that. I would definitely be one of the people praying, let's be fair, experience. I'm not typically nervous on flights, but I totally understand that like, you know, I I get it. Like I can connect because I know the stats and I'm not like particularly afraid of flying. I do it every time. But yeah, when that turbulence hits and you like drop, you know, a few feet, I'm just like, oh crap, hopefully I make it right. So yeah. The one time I get nervous on flights, and I don't, I don't know that I'd really call it nervous because I feel like having the knowledge sort of, at least for me, it actually takes away some of the anxiety because I'm like, well, if this happens, it happens. And that's just how it is. But I read about a longitudinal study they did of plane crashes. I believe in the US, it might have been global. This is a while ago. And they found that there was a statistically significant correlation between flights that had some kind of issue and the number of no-shows and late cancellations. And so they weren't trying to say, oh, one of these causes the other. They were like, look, we just analyzed all this data and we found that this is true and that it's above the margin of error. And so whenever I'm on a flight that has very few people on, like a lot of people are excited, like, oh, I can stretch out. I can take all three seats. I don't have to sit next to the snoring person. 
And I'm like, oh, I missed the cosmic message. I shouldn't have gotten on the plane. Everyone else realized something I didn't. Well, this might be it. So that's the one time that, and again, that's almost an, an opposite reaction, right? Like other people think that this is a good thing that the plane is, is sort of underbooked. And I have the opposite where I'm just sort of like, well, this, this could go, this could go anyway. <laughs> There's fewer soft cushions for you to land on if the plane goes down. Lowers your chances of making it. Well, then there's the story of a woman, I believe she was Croatian or Serbian, and she was the only person to survive this plane crash that killed everyone else on board. She was a flight attendant, and she survived because she has low blood pressure, and so she passed out as soon as the plane started to fall, and that's what allowed her to survive. So, Yeah, I think the only time I really get nervous on flights is when the little oxygen mask falls from the top. Then I start to worry. But yeah, fair I'm enough. Just, <laughs> I say, at some point, at some point, you should be freak out. Sorry, I had to say, at some point, you should be scared, right? If the plane is actually <laughs> going down, maybe that's a good time to be afraid. <laughs> but it's just really, really unlikely to happen. You know, I mean, it's in the U.S. at least for commercial flights, we went nine years without a single fatality on a flight. So yeah, cars are definitely a lot more dangerous than airplanes, statistically oh, yeah. speaking. I remember back in college, I totaled two cars within one weekend. Neither my fault, but yeah, I definitely had a string of bad luck there. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I've been in multiple car crashes in my 34 years and I've never been in a plane crash. And granted, you're in a car a lot more like more often than you are in a plane, right? For most people. But the the risk of being in a road fatality, I've got some statistics here. Your chances of dying in a vehicle are one in 103 and your chances of dying in an airplane are one in 5.4 million. Well, but again, well, those numbers only mean so much, right? Because again, the way that our brains work, like you could tell someone the statistics every single day for the rest of their lives and they might still be afraid of flying. But I don't, I don't personally know the pilot and like somebody <laughs> else has control over my life. <laughs> but I'm excited for the day that we have computerized cars, right? Uh, and computers are driving the cars. It will be safer. But I'm sure that we'll experience some of the same fears then. Mm-hmm. We even look at now, right? I think that the pilots that they've done with self-driving cars, they are arguably still much safer than people driving those cars. But any accident that they have really elevates this sense of fear that people have about self-driving cars. I'm sorry, my cat is like, I'm in a closet. My cat is trying to get in and get on my lap. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And I definitely fear the flying cars. If we ever get to a point where flying cars are an actual thing and people have the option to take manual control over the car or just like having mechanical failure. I mean, how many times have you driven down the highway and seen the car just broken on the side of the road? Well, there is no side of the road up in the air. The car's just going to fall to the ground or something. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I fear right now. So... <laughs> Where where does this rational or irrational fear come from? Like, how does it manifest differently in one person versus another? So I think to start with, I, I don't really like the using the phrase irrational fear. And we use it a lot, right? It's a, it's a common phrase in our society. But the way that we evolve to process fear, there is no irrational fear. Like, it makes a lot of sense for us to be afraid of a lot of things because we were very fragile before. Anything could kill us. A storm could kill us. And so I like to say that it's misplaced fear rather than irrational fear. And I think there's a lot of things that can contribute to the ways in which we assess risk differently. So if you're prone to anxiety, right, that's going to naturally sort of elevate your, if something happens, you're you're maybe going to react more strongly than someone who doesn't experience anxiety. There's also a whole set of what are called fear amplifiers. And so some of them are, for example, um, if there's a catastrophic potential. So if lots of people are affected all at once, rather than in small numbers over time, we tend to be more afraid of that. We overestimate the risk of that kind of event. Anything that involves children, right, you know, automatically increases our sense of outrage or fear, personal control. So a sense that we cannot do anything about a danger that is coming. So this is true with flooding. This is true with, you know, even the pandemic, right? Like you could wear a mask, you could quarantine, you could sanitize your hands constantly, and you might still get sick because 
to a certain extent, it's out of your control. And that also can, can make us feel more afraid of something. Other people's fear can make us more afraid. It's called social contagion. So this is true for things besides fear. Like if you yawn, other people might yawn. Laughter can cause other people to laugh, even if you haven't heard the joke or don't understand why it's funny. And the same is true for fear. So if you're in a room and, I don't know, a dog walks in that you don't recognize, and your instinct might be like, oh, it's a dog. I want to pet it. I want to be friends. I want to say hi. It looks so soft. But if everyone else in the room reacts with fear, then that sort of flips the switch in your brain. You're like, wait, does this dog have rabies? Does this dog known to bite people? You know, does this, is this dog going to attack me? And so I think that's, that's one that, that I think is maybe especially relevant if we think about like fear with coronavirus and COVID that's going on right now is they, they've done studies and they found that if you're in an area where most people are wearing masks, you are more likely to wear a mask. And so some of that is peer pressure, but it's also this idea of, of just like emotional contagion, right? If other people are taking it seriously, then you think to yourself, oh, I should probably take it seriously. And so you'll find that there are these clusters of areas where people are wearing masks and people aren't. And there's a lot of factors that go into that. But one of them is, you know, the sort of catch-22. If more people are wearing masks, you are more likely to wear a mask. And if fewer people are wearing masks and not taking it seriously, then you're less likely to deviate from that sort of social norm. So, I mean, I think we... I totally recognize the uh, not not in control one, right? Because we were just talking about that with the plane. How do these? I mean, I, I kind of recognize some of the others too. But so, how do these? How, how do these relate to us? Like, or, or where do we go from here? Right? Like, so, so specifically, like these are the things that make us more afraid. And so, you know, we clearly are more afraid of a plane flight, even though we shouldn't be. What does this mean? What does this mean? It depends on how, I think, how much you want to do about it. Because there's a lot of strategies that can help you to manage misplaced fears. And so in the case of a plane, for example, a lot of people will have some kind of ritual. Okay, so every time that I get on a flight, I'm going to wear this sweater and I'm going to, you know, eat beforehand and I'm going to introduce myself to the crew and I'm going to, you know, different things that sort of make it feel more familiar and more predictable. So strategies like that can help. Um, I think <laughs> I think one thing that I found really interesting is we, and again, this is looking specifically at people who live in the United States, but we have this sense of wanting to be less afraid, but not necessarily following through with some of it. So they did this study about uh, natural disasters and they pulled people in the States and they said, you know, are you worried about natural disasters? 63% of people said yes. Reasonable. They said, okay, do you see the value in having an emergency supply kit for survival? So gallons of water, maybe some blankets, cans of food, things like that. 78% of people were like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. We should definitely do that. That's a great idea. How many people do you think have actually made any effort at all to put together such a supply kit? 3%. <laughs> well, 26, but still, that's, you know, a third <laughs> of the people who think it's a good idea have done any work at all to actually act on that good idea. And so, honestly, being prepared is one of the biggest things that we can do. And kind of going along with that, owning what we do and don't know. And so there's a great quote. One of the books that I read when I was researching for this, this talk was Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. And it was written by a woman who's a professional gambler, professional gambler, who I think also has a PhD in neuroscience. And she talks about how we really judge ourselves based on the outcome of decisions that we make. And we could have all of the facts. We could make the, like arguably the best decision. Everyone could look at what we knew and the decision we made and say, yes, that was a good decision. That was the right thing to do. And it might still turn out really awful. Because we have a really hard time accepting the role that luck plays in our lives. And so for me, that kind of means like, A, giving myself grace <laughs> when I make a decision and it doesn't turn out the way that I expected. And also trying to be more deliberately aware that there are things that I don't know and can't know, and that's okay. And to just try to accept, accept those limitations and accept what I do know and use that to make the best decision I can. I think, too, the, the one thing with, with flights that makes it really hard for people is, yeah, yes, I know the facts, but I still feel all this anxiety. Like, why doesn't my brain understand that I'm going to be okay? And I think a large part of that is because fear 
for humans is first and foremost an emotional reaction. So if we look at the way that we process fear in our brains, it starts in our amygdala, which is where we process emotions. The first place that we start to to make a decision is in our amygdala. And so what what uh, what what now? What? <laughs> yeah. So this is where, so the amygdala, it presses the emotions. It starts to, you know, it, it, it does like the, the beginnings of the physical preparation. So release of this stress. Is, this is a, a physical part of the brain. This is a physical part of the brain. Yeah. It's a, it's a little section. I think it's in the back, you know, so this is, this is why. So, okay. So we start, we start in the amygdala. Then we move to the hippocampus, which is where we store memories. And this is how we contextualize something that we're afraid of. So dog, we see a dog, our brain says, okay, when have we seen this kind of thing before and what happened? And then finally it gets to our prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for complex cognitive behavior and decision-making. So we have two steps that happen before we actually get to the part of our brain that makes decisions. And that makes sense because if we're getting into a car crash, for example, we don't want to start with the decision-making. We want to react what we call instinctively, right? Swerve out of the way, slam on the brake. We don't want to have to think about that decision. We want it to just happen because we don't have time to do that decision-making process. So you're the saying there's first. a cash. Oh, I got there first. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> yeah, there really is. And it can be really hard to overwrite that cash. So think about if you have been in a car crash before. Like I one time was T-boned by a truck that just drove out into the road in front of me, skipped the stop sign. For several years after that accident, if there was a car even remotely resembling the kind of truck that hit me, that was on the same side of the street at a stop sign, like driving up to the stop sign as I was going by, I got sweaty palms. I had that adrenaline rush. My heart rate increased because before I could make the decision, you know, what we call like the rational decision that, yeah, that car is clearly slowing down. They're not going to hit me. My brain had accessed those memories of when I was hit and was preparing me for that to happen again. And so again, these, these are good things in the aggregate. This is what kept us alive. This is what continues to keep us alive. And if we had to make if we went straight to the prefrontal cortex for all of our decisions, we would never get anything done, right? I mean, just think about when you wake up in the morning, there are so many decisions that you make. And if we had to think about each one in what we call the, the deliberative mind, we would never get anything done. And so the reflexive mind, which is sort of that, that instinct part that like kicks in right away at the beginning is really useful. The difference is that I think for me, like the fears that we experience now are so different than the fears that we experienced when all of these systems were evolving and being built. And so, you know, random blue pickup truck is very unlikely to hit me, but cheetah is probably always going to attack me. And so that that connection is still there, even though it's not really as relevant in today's world. So this isn't necessarily a bad thing. This is just the way we're wired up in the first place. Yes, exactly. Because our, our dangers used to be a lot more tangible, right? Like, if you see a wolf, you should run. <laughs> this, uh, I, I'm getting kind of weird feeling. We've got mixed feelings on the way the brain works, you know? I mean, on the one hand, we, we're justifying it. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I, I get a feel like you're kind of saying that you want to control it. Well, that's the hard part, because I you do, right? A lot of, you know, when I, when I was first researching this talk and I was like, oh, did you know this? And explaining to people and they're like, well, why can't I just decide to skip that reflexive part? Why can't I just go straight to the prefrontal cortex? And that's just not really how it works. Also, again, you don't want to have to decide when to do the reflexive, because if you have to make that decision, it's probably too late in the situations where you actually need to react instinctively. So it's about, and I think this is, you know, in my research, this is true for a lot of folks who've experienced trauma, who have these very strong, you know, we talk about being triggered, right? Me seeing that pickup is me being triggered by this past accident that I was in. And so it's, it's not trying to fight the emotion because that's not really going to get you anywhere, right? That emotional process has to happen, but it's recognizing it, embracing it, compart- you know, compartmentalizing it, contextualizing it, and then moving on. So instead of having it sort of persist throughout your whole day and you're constantly fighting this sense of stress, the sweaty palms, the heart rate, let it kind of work itself through, acknowledge what it is, and then say, okay, I understand why this happened. However, this car is not a threat. So let's just let it go and try to move on to the next thing, which is easier said than done and mm-hmm. takes a lot of practice, but it, you know, it does help. Like I, I very rarely have that reaction to cars anymore, for example, because it's been three or four years since that accident. And so my brain has kind of relearned, okay, we can clear out the cash, so to speak. 
enough times has happened that we've been fine. We're good. Let's stop having this intense reaction to it. What do you think about, I mean, we're on a podcast. What do you think about this trend? And it is a trend, especially in IT, where people are trying to change the way their mind works by taking strange substances. And I'm thinking of Joe Rogan here because we've all seen him hand out all these strange, we don't have them in Britain, you know, it's not allowed. But uh, in America, I know you have all these strange psychotropic drugs. And when I was working in San Francisco, it was a bit of a craze to microdose LSD and things to try and kind of mess with the way your brain works. I was scared of that because my brain barely works as it is. And I need my brain to code and it don't work too well now. So who knows what's going to happen after a bit of the old orange sunshine. So what is your opinion on the definite trend in the IT industry to take strange substances? I do not know a lot about how LSD, for example, interacts with your brain, but most medication, most drugs, again, broadly speaking, the effects are temporary. So I don't know that doing that, I mean, if you do it long-term, you know, like anything, if you take any kind of medicine long-term, it can have permanent effects on your body. But I would venture to guess they're not actually rewiring their brains in any sense, any kind of permanent sense. Although I really don't know. And also, you know, maybe it's like, maybe it's similar to if you have social anxiety and you don't like to network, but it's part of your job. And so when you go to networking events, maybe you get a little slosh at the beginning because it's easier for you to have those conversations when you're drunk. And then after enough times of doing, and I'm not, by the way, not suggesting that people should get drunk to be able to do things they have trouble with. But if that if that's a coping mechanism for you and you go to enough of these events, eventually you will sort of develop those. It'll become easier, right? And you won't need the sort of like booze shield because you'll just, you'll be practicing having these conversations, talking to new people, You'll see that it's maybe not as bad as you thought it was. And so then you won't need it anymore. So I don't know if that's their thought is like, I'm going to microdose and, you know, do these new things and learn this one new way of doing stuff. And then eventually I won't even need it. Maybe they just want an excuse to do LSD. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I thought it was really interesting because people talk a lot about, you know, pe- people and a wider society changing our perspective. And quite a lot of times then it is helpful. You know, I can think of lots of situations where I've started thinking about something differently and it's made an enormous difference, an enormous difference, but mainly, mainly to my, you know, to my GitHub commits, not so much to my personal life. But, you know, having a new idea, having a new perspective can make a big, a big difference. So if I'm not going to do it using the Joe Rogan approach, the kind of strange psychotropic, how else? How else can I get a different approach on fear? It's a great, oh wait, I'm not supposed to say it. it's a great question, although it is a good question. All right. So that brings up something that I, I also discussed in the presentation, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's kind of exactly what you're talking about, but without the use of drugs. Although maybe there are, you know, drugs for self, you know, if you have anxiety, maybe you're on anxiety medication and things like that, but not specifically recreational drugs, I should say. And so cognitive behavioral therapy really has like two sort of main parts to it. And that's reframing, which is again, changing how you think about a situation. So this is an opportunity for me to grow versus I don't have control over this, or this is a challenge instead of an obstacle. And it looks at doing things very specifically. So instead of I'm going to change my entire life, it's like I'm going to change this one thing. So maybe I am going to get to the airport without a panic attack. I'm going to focus on that. That is my specific goal. What can I do to achieve that goal? And so the ways that they kind of do that, there are sort of four steps. So first is identifying, right, which we've talked about. Identify what is the situation or condition that is giving me trouble, whether it's anxiety, fear that I want to change. Be aware of the associated thoughts, emotions, beliefs that you have with that, right? So recognizing, okay, when this situation happens, here is how I react. Here is how I feel. This is what I experience. And then looking for patterns. So are there other things that might contribute to the fear or anxiety that you're having when this happens? So is it because you're, you know, are you driving to the airport alone? Are you taking a route that the level of traffic might vary? You know, are you, do you have an old car and you're worried about it breaking down on the way? You know, what are these sort of things that can, that can maximize the, the reaction you're having to a situation? 
And then the last step is to sort of reshape, right? Which is what we talked about. So how can I think about this differently? How can I really work to change my feelings on this? And I think the important thing is that this takes a long time, right? You're resetting new patterns. And so it's not something that you do twice and then you're cured. It really is a deliberative process that you have to do over and over, but eventually it will become a habit. And the way that you think, you know, like you said, has a huge impact on how you act. So that's a really big way that that's a framework, I think, that can be really useful, especially for fear and anxiety, if you want to sort of shift the narrative of your experience with that to something that is more manageable. So do we have any good examples or is there a way to bring this back to like things that happen to us in our development lives, right? Like, do we have, do you have good examples of like things that we like maybe react to like overly strongly in in our, you know, coding experiences or things that we just like aren't taking seriously? Maybe do we have good things there that we can connect with? Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways that misplaced fear or anxiety can affect not only our personal lives and our health, but also our performance at work or our enjoyment of work. And so some of them are, you know, if you if you have this incorrect assessment of risk for a new opportunity or for a new role, then you'll be more likely to self-select out because you're feeling fear or anxiety about that instead of, you know, again, viewing it as an obstacle instead of a challenge. You can hold back the team, right? Because if you're not able to, you know, whether it's anxiety keeping you from collaborating closely with others or from trying new frameworks or from being able to take well-intentioned feedback, you know, that can have a ripple effect through any kind of project that you're working on. This one I thought was really interesting. When we're experiencing fear and anxiety, it interrupts processes that help us act ethically. And when you think about it, it makes sense because when when we are having that, again, it's an emotional reaction first and foremost. And so when we are afraid, our body is trained to preserve us at all costs. So run from the cheetah, you know, like find shelter from the storm, whatever it is. It's not, oh, collect up everyone else first and get them in the cave and then save yourself. And so when we, when we let fear or stress or anxiety kind of take control, so to speak, then we are going to be thinking selfishly. And that, again, this isn't a judgment. This isn't a bad thing. This is just how we've preserved ourselves. But if we're not able to recognize where anxiety or fear are coming from, then we are not necessarily going to make decisions, the same decisions that we would if we were in a more deliberative state of mind. And I think the one that, that I notice a lot is the tension between perfect and done. So worrying like, oh, this isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. When do I know if it's good enough? What if they don't like it? You know, And then you spend so much time working to get it perfect when really it was good enough to begin with, right? You know, maybe 10 hours ago, it was good enough and you can work together to make any improvements that you need. So that's one that I notice in the workplace a lot. But I think all of these have have implications, like even our health implications, right? So when we are experiencing, and this is, this is more for long-term stress and anxiety, but we have a weakened immune system. Um, it damages our hearts. It can cause ulcers. It's decreased fertility, accelerated aging. It impairs the formation of long-term memories. And that one I think is also really important when we're talking about working in tech specifically as a programmer is if you have to constantly look things up, you're going to be slower and you're not going to be as effective and you're not going to get things done as quickly as you want to. Whereas if you are in a place where you, you know, your memory is working the way that you want, where you're feeling healthy, where you're excited about the work that you're doing, that just has, has such a big impact on the quality of work that you're able to produce and how you feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. Should how does the be... saying go? It's 20% circumstance and 80% reaction on how that situation pans out. So I know I've been in situations where, I mean, everything around me is not on literal fire, but everything's just like blowing up. And I was in a very calm state of mind and I was able to address it. Whereas this morning, I had a issue with our internet because I was tweaking our firewall settings and on our LAN interface, I misset the MTU and it took down our internet. My kids are trying to get on digital learning. Our, this whole thing came about because one of our cameras broke and I was trying to diagnose it and see what's going on there. And then my internet goes out because I screwed something up on the firewall. And then kids are saying, dad, dad, I can't get on digital learning. And I was already in kind of a mood this morning. So I mean, 
my reaction definitely did not help the situation at all, probably made it worse. But it's crazy about how we approach and respond to a situation will greatly determine where that situation goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, fake it till you make it is kind of real. And this is something that, especially as I've moved into more of a leadership role at my company, realizing that I can't freak out because there is no one above me to calm me down if I'm freaking out. <laughs> and, you know, again, that idea of social and emotional contagion. So if everyone on my staff is freaking out because, you know, one of our big clients discovered a bug on production that we missed in the last development cycle or something. If I react in a, hey, let's triage this, you know, can you do this? Can you do that? I'll reach out to the client. Like, we'll take care of it. Let's clear schedules for the afternoon, whatever the case is. And everyone else kind of takes those cues and is like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't as big a deal or it is, but we've got a plan. We'll figure it out. All right, let's get some work done. So yeah, the, the, you know, the way that we react to things, even if inside I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, my God, my God. You know, if outwardly I'm projecting calm, not only does that help the team around me, but then again, in that sort of cyclical nature, them being calmer then makes me feel calmer. And we sort of are helping each other in that situation without even realizing it necessarily. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Yeah, we didn't mention kids when we mentioned all those amplifiers, but they're definitely an amplifier for whatever reason. Oh, and- oh my God, oh, yeah. yes. I've, I've <laughs> never been more stressed than losing a five-year-old at Disney World. When you look around <laughs> and they are gone, that is 40 seconds of the purest fear and stress I've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It gets worse when you have more kids. Come up with this thing, kind of a joke. It's why do kids have so much energy? And the answer is because they suck the life out of their parents. <laughs> oh, it's dark. Yeah, there's a sort of eight factors. And I mentioned a few of these earlier that cause us to overestimate risk. And children is one of them, right? For this very reason. So if anything oh, happening and you mentioned children, panic multiplies. Oh, maybe you did. My bad. My bad. Oh, no, that's fine. I wasn't calling you out. It's just, you're right. You know, that makes a big difference. Is there anything which people aren't afraid of, which they should be more afraid of? I think as much as there are these eight things that cause us to overestimate, sort of the opposite can make us underestimate. So again, you know, looking at catastrophic potential, 9-11 comes to mind. A lot of people affected all at once. Whereas the flu has been going on for years, and in the States at least, a lot of people die from the flu every year. But it happens slowly over time, and it's small numbers of people spread throughout the entire country. And so we just don't treat it the same as we would something else. Driving is another one. You know, how many people don't wear their seatbelt? Because most of the time, you're fine in a car, or someone else dies in a car crash, right? But we, we just, it's this sense of like, oh, it's not going to happen to me. And so part of it, you know, victim identity is another one of these factors that cause us to overestimate risk. So if we know someone that this happened to, or if, if it happened to someone who we can relate to, we're much more likely to overestimate the sense of risk associated with that. On the flip side, if it's not happening to us, if no one we know is getting COVID, if everyone getting COVID is older and I'm 20, then I'm not going to take that as seriously. Well, I think but, also, like you said, it's the desensitize, desensitization that we have because, you know, COVID, you know, it's going to be gone in April when it gets warm, you know, it's going to be all gone. Well, no, it's still here. And it's been here for many more months. And I think people are just sick of it. They just, you know, some people just want to get back to their daily normal lives. Yeah, sure, they'll wear a mask when they go out. But the number of cases that we have now greatly exceeds the number of cases that we had back in March, but people are more relaxed about it now. Not because it's become any less dangerous, but because I believe that people are just becoming desensitized to it. They're just kind of over it. Yeah, well, and that's another one of those overestimation risk factors is familiarity, but not in the sense that we are familiar with it, in the sense that it's not common knowledge. If we don't understand, so Ebola maybe is a good example. People were freaking out about Ebola in the States because we didn't know anything about it. 
But now, like you said, COVID-19 has been around for, what, eight months in the States? And people are kind of used to it. It's more familiar, and therefore, it's less risky. It's seen as less scary. So there's this quote that I really like that kind of touches on this idea, and I mentioned this earlier, but the idea of how different dangers are to us now than they were in the past when our fear process was evolving. So there's this computational neuroscientist, Anders Sandberg, who works at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. And he says is the problem is that modern dangers like climate change are incredibly abstract. It's not even clear to us that there's any benefit to being scared. You can't do anything except feel bad about it. By comparison, being scared of a wolf has a reward, surviving, which makes it worthwhile. And there is something we can do about COVID, right? It's not a perfect analogy because you can wear a mask. You can knock on people's homes. You, can, you know, there are all these small things you can do. But again, there's no, there's no one all solution. It's not like run away from the wolf. Cool. It's not get a vaccine and you're great. It's like, we'll do these small things over and over, over a long period of time. And maybe if you're lucky, you won't get it. And so to, to a lot of people, I think that that doesn't trigger our fear system because we're used to immediate and concrete dangers. That's, that's what our, our bodies were built for is immediate concrete dangers. And so these abstract over time, complicated dangers are just hard for us to process the same without being intentional about it. Yeah, I haven't heard of any real stories where COVID has kicked in someone's fight or flight instinct. Right. (laughs) Unless if you like cough in someone's general direction at the grocery store, then they may take you out. But Mm -hmm. in general, yeah. We had quite a couple of very high profile incidents in the UK when the lockdown first happened. And the whole country ran out of toilet rolls and alcohol and other essentials. And uh, there were actually quite a few very well-publicized public disorder events in supermarkets, people fighting over the last roll of of toilet paper, people getting panicked because someone else got too close. So I would say in the UK, we have had some, some people who are, in retrospect, you know, look very overreacted because of because of covid so i think it cuts both ways but i saw i saw that donald trump got it and he was fine and he came out and uh, said uh, he was all right and then he did a little dance as well i noticed the other day so shouldn't we listen to donald trump if he says if he got it and he's okay i don't think we'll listen to donald trump i don't think anyone even if they like him listens to him yeah so anyways, what else should we talk about? Because <laughs> this, this could turn into a dumpster fire of a conversation. So <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if you answer that question. <laughs> well, you brought I, I was, up the role I'll, of I'll leadership. I'll take the dive. I'll take the dive. Oh, no, 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 no. It's going somewhere. It's going somewhere. You brought up the role of leadership and fear. <laughs> so you said that even if there's a very stressful situation going on, sometimes it can be helpful to, to not show any fear and to show leadership and say, right, you know, even though everyone's panicking, I'm panicking. If I kind of put on a brave face and calm everyone down, then I'll be all right. Is there, that- is there a different side to leadership where you should actively show fear because people aren't scared enough? I think that the key word here is leadership. And I would argue that dismissing the 200,000 plus deaths that have happened in the United States is not leadership. Leadership is is showing caution, right? And the example I use, okay, so we broke production. Leadership is not, oh, it's fine. Production breaks all the time. It doesn't matter. It'll fix itself. It'll be a miracle. It'll get better. Production will just work again. You know, leadership is, okay, acknowledge the problem, come up with specific steps to fix it, and then demonstrate those steps. So leadership would have been, hey, there's a pen, you know, pandemic going on. We should take this seriously. Here's what you can do. Wear a mask. I will demonstrate this by wearing a mask myself. We should invest in research for a vaccine. I will direct Congress to do so. You know, people should quarantine. I'm going to demonstrate that behavior. You know, we're going to pass a stimulus package that will last a long time to show that we want to take care of you even if you can't work from home. You know, so I think, I think the key difference here is sh- like acknowledging and then addressing versus pretending it doesn't exist and minimizing and diminishing yeah i mean i think the the sort of thing that that i think about all the time is like do you like the leader that like leads from behind right or do you like the leader that like you know 
is, you know, rushing forward, like, and is at the front. And obviously we know that statistically speaking, you should be behind. If you're a leader, you're going to survive a lot better. But romantically speaking, like the kind of thing that we uh, desire to follow, right, is the person that's out in front, right? And uh, the person that's willing to get their head chopped off. And I guess, yeah, the person making the plan, right? Even the thing is, is that leadership has like nothing to do with the role that you play, right? Like you can, this is why we like tell people that you can display leadership even when you're not in a position of authority, right? Because leadership is about creating plans, about being first, about taking the risk that other people are afraid to take, right? And, and you do it and other people go with you, right? You're you're sort of breaking the, as we talked about earlier, like there's, if everybody has this fear of that dog, if you're the first person to go up and like pet that dog, right? Like you're leading and other people see that you didn't die. So they'll, they'll be like, oh, okay, it's fine. Let's go do it, right? Obviously the dog is a pretty like non, non-critical thing, but but it's the same thing. Like that's leadership. And I think we really confuse titles and roles with leadership today, in my opinion. Just just saying, yeah. Yeah. Thanks I agree for with thanks you. for answering that tough question. <laughs> <laughs> what I and I think too that for me the the difference between leadership and being in charge is like a leader brings people along and someone who's just in charge leaves them behind. Yep. Because it doesn't do any good if I pet the dog and see it's fine and don't tell everyone else that the dog is fine and they're still in that room worried about the dog. Then I've just kind of abandoned everyone for my own benefit. This I couldn't is, agree more. I don't want to diminish. I definitely left something out. I don't want to diminish, you know, the person that has like the general that has to make hard choices, right? About like sacrificing mm-hmm. troops in order to like win a battle kind of like that's I feel like that's the most common example that we can think of where you're making a decision that costs somebody else their life, right? Like, I think there is room for that, but I think it's really, I think we assume that we have to do that way too much. I think people are very, just not conscious of the value of other people's lives. That bothers mm-hmm. me too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great, and this is, you know, getting political, but what's not political these days. There's a great, great meme that I've seen a lot that is in regard to people who aren't doing basic preventative measures for COVID specifically in the States. And it's, I don't know how to make you care about other people. And I think that kind of goes to that point is like, it's not about you. And I, I don't know how to impress that upon you that other people matter, even if you don't know them. Yep. Sweet. Should we, are there any more points? Can we bring any, any more specific like development kind of examples up or are we kind of near the end of that course? Um, there's a couple more things I could talk about. Did we talk about the junk? <laughs> the junk drawer? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. One of my favorite things that I learned while researching for this talk was about junk drawers. And so there's a lot in popular culture these days about organizing, whether it's Marie Kondo or there's the home edit on Netflix. And it's how can we organize everything? Everything's labeled. Everything has a place. Everything's with like things. And I read a book for this talk called Algorithms to Live by the Computer Science of Human Decisions. And they look at specific computer algorithms and how can these be applied to our daily lives. One of the ones that they look at is this idea of last recently used. So this is actually how libraries organize their books. New acquisitions, for the most part, you know, apart from like the bestseller that everyone's been waiting for, are the least likely to be checked out. But if something's already been checked out, then we know that it's being used. We know that there's interest. And so by default, libraries put whichever books were most recently turned in, therefore most recently checked out, towards the front of the library, which kind of blew my mind. Similarly, if we've used something recently, we're very likely to use it again. Now you think about your closet and how many items you have in your closet. There's a lot, like maybe, maybe I don't know, I'm, gonna, I'm kind of making this up, but let's say there's maybe 10 things that you wear pretty consistently. So your favorite pair of pants or like a sweatshirt that you throw over everything. And then there's clothes that you wear very rarely, like your nice dress for funerals or weddings. And so if you've worn something recently, you're pretty likely to wear it again. And I think about this when I think about like Stack Overflow. If I've searched for something on Stack Overflow, I'm probably going to need it again within maybe a month, a few weeks. It's probably something that's a common issue. So I've actually started in our internal wiki, a page that's just, you've searched for this before. And it's Stack Overflow questions that have solved my problem that I will probably need again. 
like when you do the search in, in Google or whatever your search engine is and you see the purple one, you're like, oh yeah, that one, that's how I did it last time. And you click that link. This also relates to junk drawers. And so I thought this was really interesting. They said that junk drawers and like piles of any sort are actually one of the quote, most well-designed and efficient structures available. And the reason for this is twofold. One, for junk drawers, your eyes are able to find something much more quickly than your hands can dig through. So this is kind of goes back to the Marie Kondo idea where she's like, roll it up so you can see everything in the drawer at the same time because your eyes will do that work much faster than your hand can lift and sort through stacks of clothes. On the other hand, a pile, whatever you most, unless it's a sorted pile. So we're not talking about like, you know, a, a file drawer. We're talking about a literal pile whatever you last used, you just put on top of the pile. And so that means it's the most accessible for the next time you use it, following again this principle of last recently used. So junk drawers and piles, people talk about like, oh, it's not a mess, it's organized chaos. And that's pretty accurate. It's literally organized chaos because the principle is that what you need the most is likely to be towards the top of the pile or towards the front of the junk drawer. I assume that it, the... The trade-off here is just that it has a scalability problem as your yes. pile gets bigger. And maintainability. I think I might have taken it a bit, a bit too far, but just because we've got a webcam here, this is, I've kind of gone over to using a junk desk here. <laughs> this, is, this is a passport. That's a wireless video system. Yeah. Uh, we can confirm then, there's a lot of junk. <laughs> and then, and then of course, we've got the tool junk pile, which is over here. We've got a drill, a hair dryer, a stapler, a bit of duct tape. And then, of course, we've got a junk wall as video. well. Yeah. The, it's probably just as well, really. <laughs> yep. So no, I, my question is, yeah. what point does a junk drawer become a junk room? That's the scalability issue. If your drawer gets full, create a room. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I would definitely say that, like, I think there's definitely, there's a lot of things, right, that have clear value at a small scale. And it's not really clear when they stop having value because of scale or some other issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I think that's where it becomes a matter of what, you know, if you find yourself wanting to create a bin for like hair products, that's probably a good idea, right? That instinct is probably one you should follow. Like until it becomes a problem, keep doing it the way you're doing it. And that's actually another algorithm that they talk about, which is called win, stay, lose, shift. So choose an option seemingly at random and just keep doing it until it doesn't work anymore. Win, win, stay, lose, shift. Yep. So if you keep winning, stay where you are. If you're losing, shift to a different strategy. And they found that this idea of like picking a random um, you know, process or system, whatever it is, and just going with it actually performs reliably better than chance. So sometimes the best decision you can make is just to make a decision and know you can change it later, right? Which is the whole idea behind like agile iterative development. It's like, well, let's pick something based on what we know now, keep doing it until it doesn't work and we have more information, we can change it later. That totally makes sense because you could accidentally hit the like winning method, right? And then never shift away from it. And so you know, you never end up with all those random losses, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why you always play the same lottery numbers, right? Well, but if you keep losing, then you, then you, <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're winning, like, why are you still playing the lottery? <laughs> <laughs> well, and this, this came from, they were looking at gambling with like slot machines. And if you are consistently winning at a slot machine, don't leave that slot machine. But as soon as you start to lose, as, a, as soon as there's like a pattern of losing, well, shift to something else because odds are you're going to do better by switching to a different machine. So the question is, does this method give you a better expected value than enough to basically beat the house's, you know, automatic handicap or whatever it is, right? Yeah, that I don't know as a non-gambler, but I, I know it's better than chance. And the, the one instance I can think of specifically that, that I used this thought process after I read about it was at work, we had an issue with the cold LaCroix constantly ran out in the fridge. And one of my colleagues who's very analytical, you know, wants to have like the best solution for everything. She's like, okay, so here's the issue. So what if we have some kind of inventory system and then we build a website for it? And so if you take one, you have to put it down. And so we always know one it's running out. Maybe we automatically assign it to someone and it switches every month who has to refill the LaCroix. And I'm like, that is super complicated. 
here's an idea. Let's just put the cans directly in the fridge. And that way, you know, when you're taking the last one, let's see how that does. If it doesn't work. (laughs) And it worked. We never ended up switching from that system because we just happened to hit one that worked. This kind of goes back to, to the idea of like, you know, done is better than perfect. Like, is there probably a arguably better system that we could tie into inventory? So our office manager knows when to order more. I mean, sure. Is this good enough? Yeah. Solves the immediate problem, which is no cold LaCroix. Cool. So things I learned on the episode today that junk drawers are the best way to organize our code. And we should probably get rid of all of the organization systems. (laughs) And basically we shouldn't, we shouldn't have more complicated things than done is better than perfect. I, I genuinely don't use Bundle to deploy code production. I don't do it. You are also in a very weird ecosystem, to be <laughs> to be frank. I know I should. Man, Bundler was the coolest thing when it came out. I, uh, anyway, sweet. Is there anything yeah. else we want to cover? Okay. Well, let's move on to picks. Hillary, if people want to reach out and find what you're doing on the internet or contact you, where should they go? I'm on Twitter. My handle is Hillary SK. I haven't been as active lately because the world is broken, but I own that pretty pretty often. People can feel free to email me, Hillary SK at 10forwardconsulting.com. And that's one L in Hillary, which is very important. The better Hillary. And yeah, those are probably the main ways. Is that 10 forward as in Star Trek 10 forward? It is. Yep. T-E-N forward. It's the name of the bar on the Enterprise. We have a lot of Star Trek jokes at work. Like we have an internal gem we wrote. Well, it's a you know public gem, but we use it internally called Jeffrey's Tube. Our support ticket persona is named Wes. Whenever anyone joins the team, we give them a Tribble. There's a woman on Etsy who makes Tribbles. And so we give everybody their own personal Tribble instead of like a rubber duck. We're, we're pretty oh big nerds. God. <laughs> I own a Tribble. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I, I, I must ask then, I must derail these picks and ask, what is your favorite episode of Star Trek The Next Generation? Since there's so much Next Gen there. Ooh, <laughs> we're actually re-watching Next Gen right now. We're doing what we call Star Trek Lunch Club. So every Tuesday we watch an episode of Next Generation in order. What is my favorite? I mean, man, I can think of the problematic ones. I Oh, you know, wait, nope, I know what it is. It's when Tasha Yar dies, because I could not stand that character. <laughs> Harsh. I was watching the series and then my friend who who I was watching with at the time was like, look, I, okay, fine. She dies. All right. She dies. It's not going to be that much longer. Just get through the death and you'll be fine. I was like, oh, okay, great. I'll keep watching. (laughs) Okay. Since we've already spoiled it, I guess it doesn't matter anyway. She's the one that dies so that Worf becomes the head head of security, security, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I don't hate her, but I love Worf. So. Yeah. I think it was just there, especially in the first season the the women characters were in need of some development so you know beverly the doctor is fantastic beverly crusher i like her a lot but you know the empath character like she just i feel like her whole role is to be like something is wrong but i don't know what it is like over and over and then Tasha Yar is supposed to be head of security, but doesn't seem like she's in charge and doesn't seem like she understands the basics of security. And then they tried to give her this like tragic backstory, but it just kind of fell flat. And yeah, you know, like she just wasn't a good fake fighter. There was a lot of things where I'm like, you had a great idea making a woman your head of security. And then she's terrible. So I wish you just wouldn't have done it at all. But I she was a fun villain. That's true. There are the the later the like She's alternate like or something yeah whatever it is yeah sweet awesome so it's one of your picks one of your picks then is that sorry is that question to me or yeah i was i was i was saying that's one of your picks then sure let's do it <laughs> are you freelancing or moonlighting or maybe you've thought about going out on your own every week we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on the freelancer show to talk about becoming better at freelancing we also bring in experts to talk about marketing seo and delivering high quality to clients so if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. Yeah. John, you want to kick us off with the official picks? Yeah, I'll kick us off with official picks. So I will also pick some Star Trek as well. I do love Next Gen. Uh, so, so the story for us is my wife and I watched the newest movies a few years ago. And then we end up watching 
you know, just on Netflix one night, the old Star Trek movies. And then my wife was like, well, now we're out of Star Trek. What are we going to do? And I was like, well, there's the shows. We could do that. So we had never seen any Star Trek, really. And so then we we did this like three year journey and we watched all of it. So now I've seen it all. So I'm not necessarily a true Trekkie, but but I enjoyed it. Anyway, I happen. I do like Next Gen. The, I like Picard the best. He's like my favorite captain. But I do really love Deep Space Nine. So that I highly recommend watching all of Star Trek just for the sake of all the captains are very different. They all have very different leadership styles. And uh, I think it's worth watching and then like looking around you and being like, oh, I recognize some of this and people. So anyway, uh, so that's a sort of extra pick added on there. The picks that I brought for today. So I got my my laptop and my toddler and a glass of water mixed a couple weeks ago and that was bad and but i i I don't know that i would have given them kudos before but i got my once i got my box i sent it out and it arrived at apple the next day and they fixed it that next day and then i got it back the day after and so i have to give some kudos to apple care service for like like legit getting my computer back pretty quickly that was actually a reasonably good experience and then also, because I've been restoring my now wiped machine, I have to put in a plug for Bitwarden. Um, if you've used like LastPass or like any other password manager, you should use any password manager. That's good. But Bitwarden is like open source and it has like all the features of all the others. And I freaking love it. And so if you don't have one, highly recommend checking it out. It's also free. Like how can you be having all the features that everybody else has and also being free? That's pretty tough. So anyway. It's pretty sweet. Those are my picks. Awesome. Luke, you want to jump in with some picks? Yeah. My my Star Trek pick is the new season, which is Star Trek Picard, which received a mixed reception in the Star Trek community. And I, I really like that series, and I'm going to stand by it because it stayed very true to the original Gene Roddenberry vision of Star Trek as kind of using fiction, using fantasy, using science fiction as a medium to say something about the world and the here and now and the way the world could be. And I think there's a lot of really interesting themes explored in the new series of Star Trek, Picard, which are well worth a look. So if you haven't checked it out, check it out. And if you have checked it out, I would say that that, that is a, a series which is going to hold up quite well over over time in the long term my technical my technical pick is putting cat games on a big screen on youtube and getting your cat to to watch it because we've been talking about psychological things on it on this episode and it appears cats you know like us have certain triggers certain uh, you know behaviors and there's a cat game on youtube which is a red string employing a kind of sinusoidal motion now i'm not joking when i say that after playing that video to my cat a few times my cat will now sit next to me and watch me code it is the coolest thing because now he's realized that things happen on the screen that he might be interested in and every so often he will check it out he'll sit next to me and he'll watch the characters appear in vim so it'll be like coding with the cat it's the it's the absolute coolest thing. He never did it before. It's a three-year-old cat. It's not a kitten. So if you want to teach your cat to to watch you code, you go on YouTube, you watch the red string cat game video, they go crazy for it. And they'll even start <laughs> watching other stuff. I mean, you know, he, he was watching Amazon Prime the other night, and uh, Jeff Bezos can barely get anyone to watch that. So there we go. Cat games on YouTube is my pick. Awesome. Thank you. That's kind of amazing. So I'll jump in with a couple of picks. My first pick is something called HomeBridge. So if you have any of the Google Nest products, whether you're on subscription or not with them, it doesn't work with the iOS HomeKit or with Apple HomeKit. But this is a self-hosted bridge that you can run on your own local network that would then allow you to use your Nest thermostat, your Nest cameras with the Apple HomeKit. So it's pretty cool. I've enjoyed been playing around with that. My second pick is Rails Store. 
teespring.com. It is a site that I just launched, which goes over to a Teespring account where you can pick up Drift and Ruby apparel and also Ruby on Rails apparel. So check it out if you want a Drifting Ruby shirt or a Ruby on Rails t-shirt. And Hillary, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, we already talked about Star Trek. For more of a tech pick, there's a gem that we've been using on a current project that, you know, I wrote all this complicated architecture, like a like a plan for how I want to do the architecture. And was talking with our VP of engineering and we were thinking about it. And then he was like, oh, hey, did you see this gem that kind of does the exact same thing? It's called Ancestry. I don't know if anyone's used it, but it's for like infinitely nesting comment structure. And it's just been great. Like there's solid documentation. We haven't had any issues with it. It plays really well with Rails. It's just been really awesome. So that'd be my call out. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate having you on today. Definitely a lot of interesting talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really fun. Definitely, yeah. Well, that's all for this show. Thanks for listening, all. Take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.